Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARC. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARC Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI, the For Your Innovation podcast by ARK Invest. I'm your host, James Wang, and today I'm joined by Sam Corus, who covers space and automation for us, as well as special guest, Eric Berger. Eric, thank you for coming on the show. Happy to be here. Eric, you're the senior writer for Ars Technica covering the Space Beat, and I think you also cover it for some other uh, publications. My primary job is for Ars Technica, where I'm the senior space editor So I cover everything from new space, companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin to what NASA is trying to do, to um, rocket companies around the world, the Russian industry, China, Europe, so kind of the whole ball. Wow, awesome. Could you give us just a bit of background on yourself, how you got into the space gig, what you were interested in, and you know what that you're working on right now? I've lived in Houston for the last two decades, and I um, started my career at the Houston Chronicle. I worked there for more than a decade and eventually got to covering space. So I've been doing it for a long time, mostly grounded here where they've got the big astronaut community and then sort of left to go cover things online for Ars Technica several years ago just because I liked the way that they approached it and they gave me you know total freedom to cover what I wanted. Just today I was working on a story about the fact that the French government just issued a report criticizing the European effort to compete with SpaceX, saying that, that their approach was too anachronistic to, to try to keep up. is interesting. And I'll just say, as an analyst covering the space industry, your work's been great. I follow you on Twitter. would encourage everyone who's interested in space to as well. Uh, you're at SciGuy Space, just really great at covering it. And the newsletter you put together as well, the Rocket Report through Ars Technica is terrific. Well, thank you very much. Absolutely. And so I guess just to kick things off, 2019 is a pretty exciting time for space overall, kind of in a new space race here. It's pretty global. What in the coming year is really exciting to you? Well, it's really interesting. There's, there's People always want to talk about space races, which we had in the 1960s, obviously, between the, the United States and Soviet Union. If you want to look at it through that lens, there are actually a number of space races going on today that are really interesting and kind of fun to follow. The first one, the biggest one maybe, is this commercial crew race. The President Trump referenced it in his State of the Union. He said that you know U.S. astronauts are going to launch from America on American rockets you know, this year. And that probably will happen, although it's certainly no guarantee. I mean, the race here is between SpaceX and their Dragon spacecraft and and Boeing and their Starliner. And what's really interesting about this is that, first of all, it's just a huge deal. It gives the United States its own ability to get its astronauts into space again, something that we haven't had since the shuttle retired. But it's also a race between a startup company, SpaceX, which is trying to do all these innovative things, and then kind of a legacy or traditional aerospace company like Boeing, which has been around since the dawn of the space age and is accustomed to getting large federal contracts and sort of carrying out that work 
you know, over many, many years. And it's not so interested in innovating on their own, but, but just sort of doing what the government tells them to do. So on one hand, you've got this commercial crew race. And then on the international front, kind of, I guess, the best analogy to the 60s space race would be efforts between the United States and China to get back to the moon. China has made it no secret that their ambition is to put humans, they call their astronauts Tychonauts, on the lunar surface by about 2030. And the question is, is the United States going to be able to match that or kind of get its act together politically to, to be able to compete with them or, or even sort of beat China back to the lunar surface? That is very much up in the air. And then the third race, which is kind of very exciting, I think from maybe your podcast perspective, is this small satellite race. So for a number of years, small satellites have had a difficult time getting into space. Either been very expensive, or you've had to wait a long time, or you've had to be second-class citizens waiting to launch on larger rockets. Now, with companies like Rocket Lab coming along, there is this new class of dedicated small sat launchers. And Rocket Lab was first to market, but there's literally dozens of other companies trying to come along and do something similar. So in you know, the next few years, we're going to see this profusion of lower cost access to space for small satellites, and that's going to open up a whole range of, of business opportunities. Yeah, I'd love to dig in more on that because if you look at the characteristics of these small rocket launchers and you look at where SpaceX started with the Falcon 1, they're not very different, similar costs profiles as well. But when SpaceX was doing it, it was ahead of its time. And so there really wasn't the demand from the small sat space. And so that's why they ultimately wound up moving up market. And now we're at the Falcon 9, the Falcon Heavy, and more. So has that ecosystem evolved enough to support this small rocket industry? I think it clearly has, at least in the eyes of the investors who are investing in all these rocket companies. Certainly, they see a big market existing now and, and coming down the line. In terms of SpaceX and the Falcon 1 rocket, when they left the Falcon 1 to go on the Falcon 9, you know that decision was driven in part by the fact that they didn't see much of a market for the Falcon 1, but also they saw much larger amounts of money coming from NASA for the commercial cargo program, this, this program that delivered supplies to the International Space Station. And Elon Musk has always had his eyes on Mars, of course, and so he wanted to build bigger and bigger rockets. And so that was one of the reasons why they left. And actually, them pulling out in 2009 sort of opened the eyes of other companies, I think, that A, it was possible for a private company to build a rocket on its own. Like what SpaceX did in 2004, 2005, 2006, when they developed the Falcon 1, you know, that was really pretty revolutionary to, on largely private capital, develop your own engine and your own rocket and get it into space. That was really pretty almost unprecedented. And that showed investors that this was possible. And by them moving up up to a larger satellite market, it, it kind of opened the way for other companies to jump into that market. I think that's really good perspective. They created the vacuum, if you will. Yes. And then as long as we're going on this course of giving broader context, so late 90s, early 2000s was the dot-com bubble, which the space industry took part in pretty heavily as well. There's a boom of companies in the 90s that got cleared out. And now we're starting to see that reemergence, as you said. What makes now different compared to now close to two decades ago? And why is it for real this time? Well, that's a great, that's a great question. There was a boom in the 1990s. That was back when the Department of Commerce was kind of making overtures to private space companies, making it easier for companies to operate in space. And what's different now is there is more money. And Specifically, you know, there is Elon Musk and, and Jeff Bezos who've kind of been at the forefront and are 
putting all of this money into better, lower cost launch capabilities. And so it's really this lower cost access to space that I think ultimately is the game changer. So there's this kind of foundational movement in aerospace called new space. And the idea is that if you bring down the cost of access to space, so build cheaper rockets and reuse them, then you can enable all sorts of new business opportunities in space. If it's, you know, $40,000 to get your, a kilogram to get your stuff into space, it's very hard to build a business case around that. But if it's five to $10,000 a kilogram to get your stuff into space, then you can do it in a timely manner. It's easier, I think, to, to develop your product. And so that really was the first step. And, and I think now the big question is, is now that launch prices are coming down, what are those killer business apps in space? Obviously, we've seen remote sensing, we've seen communications. But beyond that, I don't see a killer app developing yet in low Earth orbit or in even geostationary space that, that you know that's going to be out there. Maybe it's satellite internet. Maybe it's something else. I don't know. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about that because there are a number, number of companies who are really trying to tackle that low Earth orbit internet, global internet space. Just, and just looking at the number of satellites planned to be launched, you know, we have something around the order of 1,700 active satellites orbiting Earth now. And you just look at the plans from a handful of companies, and that number goes up to close to 10x that amount over the next 10 years. So what do you make of all of these companies trying to go after global internet? That's a great question. And I wonder how much of it is companies that see a great business case and then I wonder how much of it is is companies that see kind of our copycats, like that are getting into it thinking that, you know, well, if, if these guys are doing it, there must be something there and we must be doing it. I think from a, a perspective of, of SpaceX and their Starlink system, you know, they spent a decade building up this amazing launch system, the Falcon 9. They're getting to the point where it's becoming quite reusable. But there's a finite number of commercial launches out there for them to take up. The number of satellites being launched up to geostationary space, commercial satellites, has gone down. Um, and so that market is shrinking, and there are more rockets coming into the market, even at, at their size. I think they figure if they can get to an economy of scale and have a bunch of starlight satellites to launch, that helps their Falcon 9 business and also is you know potentially quite a profit center. But I, I don't know that I've seen any convincing analyses that show that you know, that this is going to outcompete, you know, broadband or, or on the surface. It, it's going to be really interesting over the next five years, 10 years to see how this plays out. And I think there will be quite a few more losers than winners. Eric, you touched on a really important point, which is kind of the premise behind the SpaceX business plan, if you will, which is that if they offer renew, uh, relaunchability and reusability, costs will come down and that will create um, new demand because of the lower prices. And we saw that total launches actually declined in 18, or is it scheduled to decline in 19? We're not seeing this pickup in demand. Is that the right way to view it? Um, does that call into question some of the kind of fundamental business uh, assumptions behind some of these companies? That's a really interesting issue. I mean, it's kind of like a chicken and egg. I think right now SpaceX could cut the cost of its launches from, say, 60 million to 30 or 40 million by reusing its rockets, but there is no financial incentive for the company to do so. Because no one out there on the market can really compete with the Falcon 9 rocket in terms of payload capacity at 60 million. So why would SpaceX basically cut its profit margins by 30 million or you know, cut the amount of, that, of revenue that it's bringing in per launch? So I think we're going to need more providers coming into the market before you get down to the lower cost that 
enable these other applications. And and whether that eventually comes through the small satellite companies like a Vector Space Systems or Firefly or Virgin Orbit or some companies out of China, I don't know what's going to happen. But SpaceX needs more competitors, I think, to really see the price drops that, that they've advertised in the past. And I think you also kind of hit the nail on the head when you, you know, you said SpaceX, they did reusable and they've pretty much, it's close to perfected that, especially compared to two years ago, no one thought it was possible. At least from what we're seeing on the modeling side though, right, there's the cost decline you get from the launch vehicle, but that's really just one piece of the puzzle. Historically, the cost of satellites themselves have been more expensive than the launch so we're actually seeing, you know, the cost decline in the satellites themselves and the transition to small sats. And then I think tying into what you said, the need for a killer application. And it seems like a big piece of that is the antenna. And I think a lot of companies are still working on both the satellite cost decline and then the antenna cost decline, which ultimately is going to be what opens up some of these killer apps. I think that's absolutely right. Launch is just one sort of piece of the puzzle. You need you need other technologies to, to make it work. And I think, you know, I think we're seeing kind of revolutions in terms of the miniaturization of satellites, which will help bring costs down. And there's been a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of experimentation and development to an on-orbit servicing of satellites to make them last longer or to bring them to different orbits or to bring them back up to a higher orbit. And so I think kind of those technologies are, are, are in place. I'm not sure when it's, when it's all going to come together and when a killer app is going to be discovered. I think that these are very valid questions that have yet to really be answered. And then you're out there and you're covering the space and talking to a lot of people. This is jumping topics a little bit, but when SpaceX demonstrated reusability, I think a lot of people were still skeptical now with their success in landing them. How profound is that to the industry and what are you seeing as the responses to that? Because still, I feel like we're getting a pretty mixed signal from different launch providers about what their strategy is going forward. So reusability makes sense if you launch a lot. If you're launching a rocket eight to 10 times a year, it's probably not worth it to you to invest in, in reusability you know, because it's a big technological curve and there are some savings, but, you know, you have to amortize those savings over a number of launches. Um, if you're launching 20 times a year, reusability makes perfect sense. And so I think, you know, in the short term, you're going to see different approaches. Like in Europe, they're looking at reusability, but not for quite a while. Russia is not really looking at reusability. China is, there's a lot of companies copying SpaceX's approach in China. So they're, they're taking it on board. Blue Origin is obviously kind of got this almost the exact same approach, vertical takeoff, vertical landing on autonomous ships. And so I think in the short term, companies are going to adapt in different ways. In the long term, I, I don't think there's any question that reusability is, is the way that it's going to, going to go. Just because, and if you were starting a rocket company today, you know, building a, a rocket that can launch 50 tons to orbit, you would build a reusable rocket. But there's a lot of legacies out there. There's this the solid rocket motor industry. So on the space shuttle, you know, had these two large solid rocket boosters that launched on the side of the shuttle. The European launch system has solids. Um, some of the Russian launchers have solids. Some of the Chinese rockets have solids. Solids are pretty cheap. Um, and if you have an industry already built in to, to manufacture these one-off solid rocket boosters, then you're going to use them because they give you a really nice kick to orbit. But if you're building a new rocket today, you probably don't use solid rocket 
solid rockets because they're not reusable. So long-term reusability, I think everyone will adopt it, but over the next 10 or 20 years, I think it's going to be a kind of a messy transition. And a lot of the companies who don't change their ways ultimately probably will go out of business. Okay, Eric, maybe we can also talk about something else you cover in addition to space, which is um, commercial air travel. The space industry right now is making a lot of breakthroughs technologically, but it seems to be waiting to find a customer, right? To, to find the, the killer use case. Um, but for commercial, maybe just airline travel, ever since the Concorde stopped at operation, we've really not had a commercial supersonic transport system. And there seems to be a wave of startups also pursuing supersonic travel. Could you tell us about some of those startups, what they're doing differently, and why uh, they could succeed in the context where the Concorde has failed? Okay, sure. There's, I think there's a couple things happening. First of all, NASA, over the last few years, has started a research program on supersonic air travel. So one of the big limitations for the Concorde was the fact that you couldn't take off or land really over land because of the sonic booms of going through the sound barrier. So you had flights from, you know, London to New York or, or that kind of thing, but you couldn't fly from like, you know, New York uh, to Texas or something like that, just because the sonic booms were loud and disruptive. And so NASA has been looking into programs that have much quieter sonic booms because of the aircraft shape or design, and so that you might have more overland supersonic flights. And the other thing that really you know hampered the Concorde is it was, it was very expensive, I and mean, so it was kind of a, a niche thing, I mean, and ultimately it didn't work out. And so you have some efforts, like there's a company in Colorado called Boom that is trying to you know build this prototype of a supersonic jet, and they're talking about you know, putting out commercial service in about five years. It, that's a, you know, that's a technology approach that basically they're just trying to, to take modern manufacturing airplane design and, and sort of economies of scale that might not have existed in the 1970s when the Concorde was designed and then build those aircraft and sell them to airlines. Whether that will be successful, I, I don't know. They've, they've raised several tens of millions of dollars and are moving forward. And so I think they, they think they have a good plan to getting viable, you know, offering a viable service. You know, we'll have to see. I mean, I, I just don't know how big the market is for someone who's willing to pay two or three times the amount of a, you know, a standard ticket today to, to get to Tokyo in half the time from, you know, say Los Angeles. Um, certainly there's a subsection of people for business that will pay that for first class, but will that be enough to offer service frequently enough such that it's viable to have have that route? I don't know. I do think we're you know probably at least five to ten years away from seeing that kind of commercial service return. So we'll have to see what happens. Why do you think boom and startups are pursuing this, whereas established players like Boeing and Airbus who treat this as their core business rather than a side gig with space, they don't see an opportunity and they're not developing a solution. How is it that they're disinterested while startups are interested? I think it's the smaller companies that are willing to innovate, willing to take risks and kind of stake a business on pursuing these kind of ventures. And so, you know, eventually you might see a Boeing, instead of them taking the risk, what you see Boeing and, and Lockheed in the aerospace world do is they, they kind of watch these companies and if they think they're going to be successful, then they'll buy them up. And so my guess is that that the Boeings and the Airbuses are watching these closely. And then if they see something promising, they'll kind of step in and, you know, buy it up. And maybe, and frankly, maybe that's what Boom is counting on. You know, I don't know if they have plans to really scale up and, and build these huge planes on their own. That would be, you know, it's a pretty massive undertaking to start an airline manufacturing business. I'd also just throw in, you do see that Boeing is investing in some Arion, I think is the company most recently that they invested in. And then you also have Airbus and Boeing 
who are actually pretty aggressively investing in and trying to develop their own electric vertical takeoff and landing craft. So obviously, it's a small part of their business compared to the traditional jets that they're making. But I don't think they're completely blindsided. And given the capital requirements to develop these, it seems like they've got a good finger on the pulse. I would absolutely agree with that. All righty. Maybe we can close off on a discussion with China. China seems to be the first line of topic for everything in the in the technology universe these days, whether it's internet or AI. Um, in space, they're also making a concerted effort. What is China's current approach to space? What's their kind of national objective? And do you believe they will be uh, more formidable and more effective than, say, the former uh, Soviet Union or current Russia? Yes, absolutely. China is in the midst of surpassing the Russian space program as we speak. And they have a very methodical long-range plan to use space basically to advance their national prestige. I think you know, years, decades ago, the leaders kind of looked at space and, and realized that to be a global superpower, you need to have a you know, world-class space program. And, you know, they took their historic lessons well from the U.S. moon landings and the prestige of that. And so they see sort of, you know, establishing a a first-rate space exploration program in firsts, you know, specifically doing things first in space that no other nation has done before as really, you know, brilliantly establishing themselves on on the world stage. And so we saw that, you know, just last month with the Chang'e 4 moon landing. No no one had ever landed a spacecraft on the far side of the moon, um, soft landed it successfully, and now that rover is, is moving around happily and doing interesting science there. And they're, you know, as we talked about earlier, their plan over the next decade or so is to develop the large rocket, the landers and so forth, to scale up that kind of program from robots to humans. And they're out there talking to European partners. So the United States partners with Russia and about a dozen European countries on the International Space Station. China's gone to some of those partners and said, hey, would you like to come along with us to the moon? And so they're trying to peel some of those people away from NASA um, and for their own lunar return program. And so they have an increasingly sophisticated program. You know, it was possible five years ago to maybe look at the China program and say everything that they had done was derivative of Russia and the United States. But now, you know, they're really starting to take significant steps. And, and you know, NASA and frankly, Congress really need to kind of get their act together if they're going to equal or surpass what you know what NASA or excuse me what China is planning to do on the lunar surface, I mean we could wake up a decade from now to see Chinese astronauts landing on the surface of the moon, and you know NASA United States is scrambling to catch up. So China is definitely a serious player in space. Absolutely, great. Hi, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And I'd just say again to anyone who's listening and interested in the space, be sure to follow Eric's work at Ars Technica and at SciGuy Space on Twitter. And Eric, what is the name of your newsletter and how can people sign up? Oh, it's called The Rocket Report. And I think if you just Google Rocket Report, it'll come up. Uh, you can sign up on the, the Ars Technica website. Awesome. Thanks again for joining us, Eric. Hey, thank you very much. Have a great day, guys. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results.